Hello, welcome back to the podcast. Today we're going to get geeky into thyroid health, specifically gut infections, heavy metals, toxins, mold, and more. We're chatting with a good friend of mine, Ina Toplier. Ina is a clinical nutritionist practicing a functional approach to thyroid health. She also has a podcast, which I enjoy. I've been a guest on there several times over the last five to seven years or so. It's called Health Mysteries Solved thyroid and Hashimoto's revealed. So she really zooms in on Hashimoto's and thyroid, but when you're working clinically and you have to succeed with these thyroid cases, you really have to become an expert in other places beyond thyroid. Thyroid is just the marketing, right? To get people in the door. Like, hey, I'm going to go to this thyroid chick because I have thyroid issues. But then she will uncover many other things that are leading to the thyroid issue. And that's why this functional medicine world is kind of tricky. So when you're looking for practitioners, when you're seeking out someone to help you with your issues, you may fall for their marketing pitch, like the gut guy. Like here's this leaky gut guy. He's going to sell you this elemental diet. He's going to sell you this leaky gut powder and you think everything's going to be resolved and it won't. Those are just the marketing niches because niches are where the riches are is what all the business coaches teach people. So when you're a health person and then you're trying to make a business out of the health career, people, they niche themselves down. And I think it's good, but it's a double-edged sword. I could rant on this all day, but the point is, if you go to the adrenal guy, everything's adrenal issues. You go to the leaky gut guy, everything's leaky gut. Well, Ina and I are different. We're going to say, yeah, sure, let's talk about thyroid, let's talk about gut, let's talk about parasites. However, there's other things here. You have to look at the whole picture, and that's less sexy. It's a harder sell, especially with the attention span that people have due to TikTok and Instagram. The attention span for you to grasp that whole picture. We have to fix the nutrition, the water leak in your basement, the copper pipes in your walls, the air purification needs fixing the infections, optimizing the microbiome, supporting the mitochondria, stabilizing the adrenals, working on the limbic system, supporting and replacing nutrient deficiencies, balancing neurotransmitters, helping the thyroid. You see how that gets a little harder to sell in a way? So I want you to think about this as you look at health content out there and ask the question, is what you're seeing and getting and being sold the full picture? Or is, there, or is there something deeper that this person is just ignoring? That's an important way for you to finally fix your health issues. And I'm blessed to be able to be in the position to have suffered and looked at every little avenue and fell into every rabbit hole because I had to to get myself better. I had to to get my own health back. So it's been a hell of a journey, but it makes me a better practitioner at the end of the day. So if you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining me. I'm a functional medicine practitioner, also a functional nutritional therapy practitioner. These credentials have allowed me to open the door to lab testing companies around the country where we can use advanced urine and stool, sometimes blood, but often urine and stool are better, obviously not invasive. And the amount of clinical data you can get on someone's brain chemistry and mitochondrial health, nutrient levels, gut issues, parasites, H. pylori, we can investigate all of that easily without you leaving your house. And it's not that because it's convenient, 
it's not good. No, it's literally better than the testing you're going to get at a hospital. Trust me. A lot of my friends are doctors that have worked in hospitals, even emergency room doctors. They'll tell you, look, we don't have this type of testing available. Now, if you get your arm cut off, obviously you might need to have some some help. Like if a shark bites your arm off, that's terrible. Uh, but the emergency room is going to help you, and they might run some labs on you to help you. Maybe some white blood cell count or something. Make sure you don't have an infection from the shark bite. Like those kind of things, I'm not doing. But the functional labs are really where the magic happens. So if you've been suffering for a year, five years, 10, 20, it really doesn't matter because these labs are going to help identify the root cause. Whether it started last year or 20 years ago, you're still going to have the same root causes. So we can figure this out. If you're not a one-on-one -on -one clinical person, you don't want to sit there and talk to somebody. You'd rather just like poke around because you're a researcher. Well, then that's fine. You can get geeky. I have functional medicine training courses dedicated to those do-it-yourselfers. My Better Belly course now is amazing. I just put in a new case study, so I think you'll love that, a new lecture. You'll love that on histamine. So if you'd like to enroll for the summer period, you sure can. We'll have the link in the podcast if you want to check it out. Your enrollment opens a lot of doors to protocols we can help with, lab testing. So if you decide you want to learn and do it yourself, we'll help you sign off on the labs you need to get the data on yourself. If you do want help one-on-one, -on -one, you can still reach out to me. I have limited availability on my site, evanbrand.com. You can book a 15-minute free call with me. I'll listen to your issues. I'll let you know if I can help you. We'll come up with a testing strategy protocol right out of the gate. And that way, by the time our first appointment comes, we already have all the data in hand. So that's a great way for me to work efficiently and help as many people as possible. All right, without further ado, let's get into the show. Ina Toplier, thanks for joining me again. So happy to be here. Great to see you, Evan. You too. So pre-show, we were chatting about courses because we both have courses dedicated to helping people because we're only one person. And once you do it a thousand times, 2000 times, you can really boil down your clinical skills and distill it into something more potent. It's like the essential oil of natural medicine, where you can take everything you've done in the nitty gritty behind the scenes and condense it and put it into a more digestible format. So I'm curious, your specialty and your focus, your niche, uh, what you educate about most and help people with most is thyroid issues, specifically autoimmune thyroid issues. I want to know your pie chart. I ask this to a lot of people in different issues, whether it's like fatigue, anxiety, whatever like specialty symptom we're getting into, but let's just zoom in on thyroid. What does your pie chart look like? Meaning root cause wise? Hmm. It's a great question. Well, I think in terms of symptoms first, so it's going to be fatigue, brain fog, weight gain, hair loss, fertility, but many other issues too, but those are kind of the main. And then the pie chart of the underlying issues. So with hypothyroidism, most hypothyroidism, about 90%, even more than 90% really is caused by Hashimoto's, which is the autoimmune disease where your immune system attacks your own thyroid. And there it's really the different triggers that create that immune system confusion. So that could really be anything and everything. I like to look at those triggers in sort of the main categories, which would be the food, the infections, the toxins, and the stressors that I think we all have something in all of those four categories. But if I had to pick, you know, kind of the biggest triggers out of that, I would say from a food perspective, it would be gluten and dairy for many, many people with Hashimoto's. 
that then go on to have hypothyroidism. From an infection standpoint, it could be a lot of things, but it's a lot of candida, H. pylori, parasites, Epstein-Barr, and I mean, we can do a whole podcast and, and more on Epstein-Barr, but I've just been seeing so much reactivation just with post-COVID and everything that's been happening. So EBV has just been rampant. So that's a big trigger. Toxin-wise, there's such a big connection between heavy metals with thyroid issues, so mercury specifically, but I also see a lot of copper, and that's something that people don't always pay attention to because we don't think of copper as a toxic metal because it is a mineral, but in high amounts, it actually acts as a toxin in the body and creates a lot of different issues. So mercury toxicity, copper toxicity, obviously other metals as well, but those would be the two biggies. And then, you know, when we talk about stress, there's a lot of different things underlying there. So of course, there's the physical stressors of blood sugar dysregulation and all these infections and these toxins. And then of course, all the emotional stressors, which I just think play a much bigger role than people give it credit for. Agreed. Wow. Cool about the copper. You know, that was actually one of my most popular YouTube videos I did years ago. It was on copper toxicity. And it was something I learned about from a guy named Albert Minza, who I believe he's an MD, but he kind of turned me on to this idea of copper toxicity. And then you hear about copper deficiency. So then people get confused. Where are you looking? Is this just copper IUDs or where are you looking in terms of source for for this copper problem? And are you measuring this with, are you doing hair? Are you doing blood? Or is this like a, a functional clinical thing where you're like, hey, every woman's deficient in zinc. Every woman that has H. pylori probably has low zinc. Let's just give zinc to oppose the copper or walk me through that. Yeah. So I like to test whenever possible. Of course, there are situations where someone may not be able to afford it or there's other issues. But for the most part, if we can test it and the testing is accurate, then I do it because I don't like to think of it as everyone has this or everyone has that. Because yes, of course, there's tendencies, but I do think that we're all individuals. So I like to test. And when it comes to copper, I actually have a lot of personal experience with this unfortunately for me, but fortunately at the same time, because I know so much about it and can you know really help a lot of people. But um, I do, there's a couple of ways to test for it, but I find hair testing to be very accurate for copper. It's not always accurate for other metals just because people could be non-excretors and it doesn't always come out, but I don't typically see many issues with copper. If it's there, we see it. And I personally had really high copper levels. And because of that, it, I had a zinc deficiency. And interestingly enough, and you've probably talked about this on previous shows, but zinc deficiency can go back to, you know, four generations prior. And, you know, I noticed certain symptoms like stretch marks and other things like that, which are all tendency of zinc deficiency. So my mom had a zinc deficiency. I'm sure my grandma did as well. And so I think it was passed down. But when you have high copper, that's going to offset the zinc and create more of the zinc deficiency. So when looking at a hair test, my copper was through the roof. My zinc actually was completely normal. It was within the normal range, but it's all about relativity and ratios. And so my ratio was actually very off. Now, in terms of where it comes from, believe it or not, I don't find, at least personally through my experience um, with a lot of different people, copper IUDs play as much of a role. I thought that they would, but I test, I do a hair test on almost every single person that comes into the practice. And many people do have copper IUDs. I don't see higher copper with them necessarily, not in blood or on the hair test. Now, again, I mean, I'm not saying I have thousands and thousands of people, but, you know, I would say 
at least a thousand people. Um, I have not seen that. But I do see it with birth control in general because of the synthetic estrogen and just higher estrogen in general is going to promote more of a copper storage and then hence a zinc deficiency. So I will see that when people are on birth control. Copper pipes are a bigger issue than we think about. Most homes have copper pipes. And as those pipes get old, and especially if we don't have any type of water purification in place, then the copper starts leaching out of that. Um, so that's another big one. Food can contribute to some extent um, if someone's eating a lot of things like crabs or avocado or a lot of nuts, but I find that food doesn't really play as much of a role. So it's the contraceptives, but again, not the copper hygiene necessarily, but just the birth control pill and then the copper pipes. Um, wow. That that makes me think like, what about mold? Because zeaverlinone, I'm sure other mycotoxins, I think all mold toxins are probably estrogenic, but at least there's enough literature to prove the zeaverlinone, which comes from Fusarium mold, that one is hi highly, 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 highly estrogenic. So I'm wondering how much that's playing a role too, because you got me thinking now, if the IUD is not as much of a problem, estrogen could be the problem. And you have all these estrogen dominant women walking around with mold toxin in them and potentially doing birth control. It sounds mm -hmm. like a recipe for disaster. Yeah. And then on top of that, so we talked about that opposing effect that zinc is going to have on copper and how, you know, that creates a zinc deficiency. A lot of people, as you mentioned, have a zinc deficiency to begin with. The other mineral that's really important is molybdenum. So molybdenum is also something that will oppose copper. And so often people have that deficiency. So if that's low and zinc is low, copper is going to naturally become higher because there's nothing to offset it. And then bringing that back around to the estrogen issue is when you're looking at detoxing estrogen, right? Through glucuronidation and needing that pathway to work properly, molybdenum plays a role there. Molybdenum also plays a role with the SOUX enzyme, which helps to convert the sulfite into sulfate. So that whole um, transsulfuration pathway is going to be affected with the detox. So it's like this triple whammy, essentially, because you can have estrogen dominance naturally, plus also from birth control, plus mold, plus there's other infections, I'm sure, that carry it. And then also you have these liver pathways that aren't working as well and minerals that you're deficient in because of the copper that don't allow you to actually metabolize and excrete that estrogen properly. And you're saying the liver is affected. Why? What, what are people missing or needing that they don't have for the liver to work the way it should in this case? So, uh, well, there could be a lot of genetic things where certain liver pathways aren't working. And when they don't and have enough nutrients and minerals, the liver is not going to work as well. And then if they have estrogen dominance and they're low in molybdenum and their body's not excreting, especially if they're genetically prone to that pathway being slower, then they're not going to properly excrete it. Ah, makes perfect sense. Yeah. So something that's interesting about piping, I was trying to figure this out here. So it says here, this is some home article that copper was the plumbing pipe of choice from approximately the 1950s until around 2000. So just for folks, when your house was built, you should think about this. Apparently it was the most popular and it became quote, the gold standard in the seventies. So I know my house is new construction and we all, we have PEX piping, which 
who knows, maybe that'll end up being toxic later on. And we'll say, my God, why did we all switch to, to the PEX? I need to see what PEX is even made of. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not familiar with that. My house was built in 96 and I know we still have copper. I see it all in the basement. Oh, do you really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, but we we have a whole house. We're actually on well water, which is a whole other can of worms, but we have a super duper whole house filtration and we don't actually even drink that water. That's just for the showering. And then we get water delivered in glass jugs from yeah. a spring. So. so supposedly Science Daily had a paper on it that there were no health risks associated with drinking water from PEX. But then you'll read, there's an article called Pipe Wars. And supposedly some of these PEX uh, pipes can release toluene. Mm. But there is an article here. This is a woman who, uh, her name is Corinne. I've seen her articles before on like, paint and other chemicals so she was saying here non-toxic pipe options so maybe this would help folks if you're if you're building supposedly this post was reviewed by a master plumber so apparently number one choice would be pex which is what almost every new construction has now Mm -hmm. okay so it's the hdpe that's so like if you see a like vitamin water or something that has a one on the bottom of it like the recycling number I believe number one is the HDPE, like supplements, professional supplements that come in plastic. Those are typically this as well, the HDPE. And it says that it would be free of BPA and BPS. And I'm glad it's free of BPS too, because so many things have BPA, or we'll say BPA free, but we'll still have BPS. So that's great to know. Yeah. So so that's interesting. So it sounds yeah. like PEX is the best. Now, it's rare for things that are the most common to be the best. Usually the most common is terrible. So that's yes, that's good to that know. That is true. But I feel like we've come a long way, you know, yeah. with just awareness of things. And so, you know, I think companies are at least slightly more aware of these things. Yeah. Okay. We should talk more about the glucuronidation issue because this is huge. And I think this is something that most people have never heard of. They don't understand there's different pathways. Like pick people in their mind, picture detox is like this one river that you can go down. Like that's it. That's the detox road. But really, as you mentioned, you have like the sulfur or sulfation pathway. You have glucuronidation, you have glutathione. And when you do the GI map stool test, which I know you and I both love and do on page four, you have the beta glucuronidase enzyme marker I would assume in your population, you're seeing that high quite often. I do. Yeah, a good amount of the time. And so just to make sure everyone's on the same page, you know, with glucuronidation, as you said, that's the one of the liver pathways that helps to detox estrogens, different carcinogenic compounds, and just certain types of toxins. But it's one of the main pathways that estrogens go through. And with estrogen, we have to make sure that we metabolize it into the more positive estrogen. And then we also have to make sure that we excrete it out. And so it goes through that pathway. And my population is typically women between about 25 and 65. Um, Most of them have hypothyroidism, and Hashimoto's because usually one goes with the other and they're experiencing a lot of different issues. And actually one of one of the things I talk about is different thyroid types because it's not about that your thyroid is just slow or normal, right? Or fast. 
when it's slow, you can have different types of slowdowns, which I call thyroid types. And there's one specific type that has a lot to do with what happens with your estrogen and how well you're processing estrogen. So when you have estrogen dominance, which is essentially more estrogen than what your body needs, but it's not necessarily that the estrogen is high. It's just off balance with the other hormones. So in relativity, there's more of it. The body has to work harder to get rid of it. And it goes down through that pathway. So the beta-glucuronidase enzyme is something that actually doesn't really help with that detoxification. Meaning what the body does is it sees the excess estrogen, right? Or the estrogen needs to come out and it packages it up. So almost think of it as like, you know, you're at the post office and you have a conveyor belt and you're like, oh, there's this estrogen that needs to come out. Let's put it in these little boxes. And then once the estrogen is in a box, then it's easy for it to go down the conveyor belt and then into out, you know, wherever it needs to go. Well, beta-glucuronidase is when it's elevated, when there's a lot of it, it unboxes things. So here are the postal workers packaging it up, right, to send it out. But if you have a lot of beta-glucuronidase, it comes out and says, oh, look, it's a present. Let's open it, right? And so it opens up the boxes and the estrogen pops out. So the body's trying to get it out, but then it opens it all up. So there's this estrogen getting reabsorbed back in. So, you know, you don't want to obviously have it too low, but you don't want the beta-glucuronidase to be too high because it undoes the job of getting that estrogen out properly. And there's many reasons as to why that can be high, but so often when there's imbalances in the gut, so if there's candida, if there's other types of overgrowth, then that's going to elevate that enzyme. And um, one of the best things that I find for that is, of course, fixing what's underlying in the gut, but also using a supplement called calcium deglucurate, which helps to bring it down. I'm not sure if there's something else that you do. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well. Yeah. So we should look at this. This is kind of, this is getting geeky, but I think- <laughs> I, I like think geeky. We, yeah, I think people need it. So this is kind of crazy. And yeah, I'm going to talk to you about beta-glucuronidase. You're exactly right. That's the same thing I tell people. Um, you you worded it in a different way, which I thought was really beautiful and, and eloquent. I'll, I'll tell you my, my analogy of it in a second. But this was an interesting paper here. I just I just recently pulled this up, but it was called the microbiome estrogen connection and breast cancer risk. And so you go down into this paper a little bit, and they've got a cool picture here about this whole enterohepatic recirculation issue that happens. But the the last sentence here, which there's like five papers backing this up, is is pretty nuts. It says it's important to note that the regulation of estrogen levels in the body is largely dependent upon the microbiome. So holy crap. Because mm -hmm. think about how many women out there with breast cancer that have already had it, they've been through chemo, they've done whatever. Think about all their guts and what mm -hmm. those gut pictures look like. It's yeah. probably a mess. I mean, this I must say it one more time because this is freaking nuts. The regulation of estrogen levels in the body largely dependent upon the microbiome. Right. So that's crazy. And, yeah, then, and that's exactly what we were just saying, right? Because the microbiome, meaning the amount of candida or other stuff that you have, things that are off, is going to regulate beta-glucuronidase, which is going to regulate how well you excrete the estrogen. And if you don't excrete it well, then there's when a lot of the estrogen um, positive or dominant cancers can come in. So, 
scary. Yeah, it's crazy it, and scary, but it makes so much sense. But also at the same time, I think it's really empowering, right? Yes. As scary as it is, it's like, hey, like we can support this. We can start to look at this and it doesn't have to be such a mystery. Yeah, this is another sentence uh, basically saying what you've already told us, but just in a different way is that most of the conjugated estrogens are excreted in urine or feces, but significant proportion could be reabsorbed into circulation. And then when you have the gut bacteria screwing up this beta-glucuronidase enzyme, that that'll deconjugate, or as you said, take out of the box, it'll deconjugate the conjugated estrogens leading to reabsorption into circulation. So the way I use my analogy, instead of packaging, which I think is, is cute, uh, I, I talk about a straight jacket. And mm -hmm. I just tell people like, hey, this stuff's in a straight jacket, it's wrapped up, we're getting it out, it's a crazy person, we're getting it out of here, Within your gut issues, rip open the straight jacket. We unzip the jacket and boom, estrogen comes out. It's like, hey, surprise, and mm. retoxifies you. Right. I like that. This is this is a really important piece of the puzzle. How does this tie back into thyroid? I think you and I last time we talked, which I didn't even look. It, it's probably been four or five years. Who knows? Oh, since years, we did a yeah. podcast. But I'm I'm glad we're back and, and we've learned more probably since then. And I think last time we probably talked somewhat about the gut bacteria and Hashimoto's like Klebsiella specifically. Um, you did mention H. pylori, you mentioned parasites. Are you seeing, or can you tell us any big specific triggers like blasto more than this, giardia more than that? I mean, can you, can you pinpoint or is it just the whole sum of this stuff? I think it's the sum and here's why. I mean, there is absolutely research on blasto correlate being correlated to that h pylori is a big one um, as a trigger but the thing is and what i find is that anyone can have any trigger right because if we think about autoimmunity just as a whole right well what is that i mean in, in the most simple way well it's when your body gets confused and accidentally because it's confused and tired and just dealing with so much starts attacking your organs so in hashimoto's right? Your body's attacking your thyroid. Is it the thyroid's fault it's being attacked? No, of course not. The thyroid didn't do anything wrong. Your immune system got confused because of all of these different triggers and it attacked the thyroid. So yes, I think blasto is common. Yes, H. pylori is common. Hep C is another common one. And when I say common, I see them, but there's also specific research showing that there is a molecular mimicry and that there's this correlation. But really, honestly, it could be anything. I have people with Hashimoto's who, and we've tested, we've done GI map, we've done breast testing, we've done all these different things. There's no H. pylori, there's no blasto, right? But they have candida or they have mold or they have EBV or they have these other things. So I think that as much as some of these are common, it really is individual and it could be any of the things. And I always use this analogy of the bucket where when we have a bucket full of stuff, right? So the stress that we've lived with, the toxins, the infections, the foods that we eat, everyone's bucket is a slightly different size and shape, just like we all look a little bit different. When that bucket fills up and it's at the top, you put one last thing into the bucket, starts to overflow and you have the symptoms, right? So autoimmune can be triggered or certain um, symptoms start to come up even if you didn't have them before. So in that bucket, we can have a hundred things. Now, can we necessarily address a hundred things? I mean, we can, right? But in some situations, certain things maybe are harder than others. So do we have to address a hundred things? I don't think so. Not necessarily. We look and see, okay, what's the biggest things? And we get the bucket down. Even if we'll say we get it down halfway, 
Well, now we have all this room in the bucket so that if something comes in, it's not going to be potentially as problematic. So it's important to look and see for each person what their big things are. And I like to look in those four categories, right? The infections, the foods, the toxins, and the stress, so we can pick the biggest in each. Um, So yes, H. pylori is common, but not everyone has it. So I just don't want people to think, oh, I have Hashimoto's, but I don't have H. pylori. Well, okay, good. I'm good on infections then, right? It could be anything. It could be any of those other things. And the same thing with viruses. They may not have hep C, but maybe they have EBV or maybe there could be, and sometimes with EBV, when it reactivates, it's definitely an issue. But even if it's not currently reactivated, and just for everyone listening, in order to know if it's reactivated, you would want to look at the early antigen in a blood test. But the reactivation is something that only lasts at least in a blood test for a short while. So typically, and this is something that uh, Kasha Kynes talks about, who's um, one of the biggest EBV experts, you know, she says that it gets elevated for maybe three weeks. I've seen it elevated longer than that because I think people have other chronic issues, but typically it doesn't stay elevated for too long. So you could have had a reactivation of Epstein-Barr say a month ago, right? Maybe you felt off, maybe you had even a cold and you start to feel really tired. But if you test the early antigen a month later, it might be back down. And then people say, oh, yeah, that's not it. But if you tested a month ago, it probably would have been there. So I think it's important to look at the other titers, too, because very often, you know, the other titers, by the way, for Epstein-Barr would be the VCA IgM, which is current infection, IgG, which is the past infection, and also the EBNA IgG. So what's interesting is current infection IgM doesn't always show up. So you can even have an early antigen that's positive, meaning it's reactivated. But because the IgM, they measure, I believe it's under 36, what happens is that when it's a second reactivation, for most people, we've had Epstein-Barr you know, at some point when we were very young, so it reactivates again and again in our life. The second, third, or the 10th reactivation, that IgM doesn't go that high. So if the lab is saying under 36 is okay, right, you could be at 34, so it's not going to flag it, which is why the IgM can so often look negative. But if you have a really, really high past infection and, you know, there's thought that it may have reactivated, that very well could have been it. And you just may have missed the reactivation because it was a month or two ago and we still want to support it. This is the whole beauty of the functional medicine lens, right? Because there's a huge spectrum of pathology where conventional medicine is going to say, yep, it's a problem. And then below that flag, you're going to say, yep, there's a problem. So, so I want to highlight that. And I never answered your question. You kind of, you know, posed to me, hot potato to me uh, on the glucuronidation issue. Honestly, I've seen beta-glucuronidase like 2000 points high on the GI map. And if it gets that high, then I'll do calcium deglucurate. But a lot of times I'll just do, I've got a low histamine, 50 billion probiotic. I'll throw that in. We'll do some Saccharomyces. We'll do antimicrobials, antifungals, antivirals for whatever infections. And it fixes itself almost always with that. But if it's real high, I don't want to feel like I'm neglecting it. So then I will do the glucurate for maybe a month or two. And then it's always fine on the retest. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so Epstein-Barr, this is something that you can also test on the stool. I'm curious, what are you seeing with the blood? And then how does that match up to the stool? Do you think the stool's missing it a lot? Because it's rare for me to see a positive. Yeah, on the that, stool is uh, only if it's reactivated and it's current, which mm-hmm. is again a short window. So yeah. I have actually, and I do a lot of GI maps. I maybe I've seen it once. Yeah. Maybe. Do you see it often? 
Uh, maybe four or five times in 10 years of doing them. Right, right. Yeah, because it's a really short window and it just, you know, you have to catch it at the right time in the right moment. So, yeah, but I can't tell you how many early antigens positive I've seen in the last two years compared to the last 18 years before that or 17 years before COVID. And we know that there's such a big connection with COVID reactivating it. And, you know, people talk about it, but I think until you see it right there on paper, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, like they're right. Not that I wasn't believing the people that were saying it, but I mean, I would say, and I test EBV quite often, I would maybe in a typical year, I don't know, I'll see like maybe 10, 15 cases of reactivation that we happen to catch in the last two years. It's like almost every other person. Wow. That I test. Now, again, I mean, I don't test every single person. I only test if they have some type of a symptom, you know, that is related to that or they have Hashimoto's. And it's like, I've just never, ever seen so many reactivations. Well, this is real. It's not just you. I mean, this is here in the literature. I don't know how much you've poked around, but all I put in was COVID, EBV, here we go. And it was talking about how Epstein-Barr virus reactivation during uh, COVID hospitalization significantly increased mortality and death. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? Because you would think that Epstein-Barr, it, it's kind of easy to brush off because so many of us in the health space like this talk about it. It's like, oh yeah, it's a virus and whatever, We're talking about EBV. But in this case, for them to say it's significantly increasing death if you had COVID too, that's, this well, is because pretty Because if you think about the underlying of that, right? Think about all of like the cytokine storm that happens and then you have the EBV that goes in and it's lysing and it's spreading everywhere, right? And there's connection between EBV and so many other autoimmune issues and inflammation. There's even a paper um, on the EBV connection to cancer. So again, I'm not here to scare anyone in any way. And there's so much we could do for EBV, but it makes sense because, you know, now you're combining all the inflammation from COVID, especially when we look at some of the earlier strains that, you know, really had such a higher rate of mortality on top of other viruses and other inflammation. It's just a lot for the body to handle. It looks like it was 10% more because it's saying here, the ones that were negative for EBV had 10% less mortality. So these were hospitalized people that they were looking at. So basically, if you had EBV and COVID at the same time, and you were hospitalized, 130 more people out of every 10,000, out of every 1,000 patients. So you take 1,000 people that are COVID positive, 130 of those more would die if they had EBV also. That's yeah, quite a bit. It is. Yeah. But again, I mean, the point obviously here is not to scare anyone with that. Um, it is important though to know, but I think even more so is, you know, if someone's not hospitalized, right? And a lot mm -hmm. of, especially more recent COVID cases are fairly mild, right? So people are like, yeah, had it, no big deal. Don't think about it, right? But what happens is that inflammation still happens, especially if, you know, and I'm sure I have my own COVID protocol. I know you have yours. They're probably similar, you know, things to take when you have it to not only help your immune system, but also to help prevent that cytokine storm, to help prevent a lot of the autoimmunity that can lead from the confusion of all the immune system. But you know, a lot of times people have mild cases, they don't do much or think about it. So I'm not even talking about those who go on to have long COVID, but even just mild cases that still can create an EBV reactivation. Now, again, does that increase mortality? Probably not, but does that increase their chance for Hashimoto's or relapse of, um, you know, other issues? 
Absolutely. So it's just, I think, a connection that we talk a lot about in the functional medicine space, but it's not talked about you know, nearly enough throughout and conventionally. And so then people feel like, oh, you know, COVID wasn't even so bad. Why am I feeling this? Or why all of a sudden, you know, this happens? And one of the things that I do um, for my thyroid program is I have these monthly groups and, you know, we connect in the group um, and, you know, I, I do a training and I always ask people, you know, when they were diagnosed and what happened, how they're feeling. Cause I love to just hear people's stories and collect data. And I mean, so often people say I was diagnosed after COVID with Hashimoto's or I've had Hashimoto's, maybe it was in remission. It wasn't really kind of bothering me, quote unquote. And then I had COVID and then all my symptoms came back. And so that's the connection there. But again, there's so much that can be done about that by really helping to balance the immune system. And EBV is just this kind of bridge that tends to flare when that happens. Wow. And if you're listening and you got a little brain fog from all this, you're like, what the heck did I get into today? So EBV, formerly called human gamma herpes virus number four, one of the most common ever in the world, like almost everyone has it. And that's the virus that causes mono. So most people know mono because maybe you got it in high school, college, something like that. So so that's what we're talking about. And apparently there's there's four stages of it. I've heard of a six-stage model of infection. I've heard of a four-stage. I don't know. I don't want to get into that geekiness today because I don't think it, it helps us. But uh, you and I, later this year, we're going to be doing a joint webinar together, which I think will be fun. And we'll get geeky and geekier on this topic of EBV, parasites, gut infections, thyroid issues, et cetera. So uh, we'll say to be determined, we'll I'll announce that here now. And then what we should probably do, we'll do this. I'm going to make a, a special page now, and then I'll put the link in the show notes where people can opt in for that future notification. So if you're listening, you're like, hey, I need to learn more about this, then we'll make a landing page for you all. That'll be our thyroid webinar together. And this will give people an opportunity to access your thyroid materials as well. And then you'll be able to put your email in and we'll notify you guys. So if you're listening, look in your show notes, Spotify, Apple, wherever, look for the link. We'll have that there. Put your email in. We'll tag you. And that way we notify you, hey, webinar's coming. Boom. And come join us. Because when you hear a podcast, like maybe you're doing dishes right now or you're driving and you're like, okay, how do I actually apply all of this so I can improve myself? It's hard to do that in one hour of this. So we can unpack that later. Um, I, I do want to know, though, in terms of like ongoing support, are you keeping people on things? Are you doing astragalus? Are you doing vitamin C? Are you doing hatunia? Like, are you doing, uh, I mean, there's Japanese knotweed. I mean, there's a million different like herbal anti-inflammatories, herbal antivirals, et cetera. Is there something you're keeping people on in the times that we're in where you're saying, hey, you might get exposed to this or that could reactivate EBV? What what are you keeping people with? Medicinal mm -hmm. mushrooms? Like, what does it look like? Yeah, I have a viral protocol, which I use if someone feels like they're exposed or they're around people who are sick. But then there's also, I use portions of that protocol on a daily basis. I, I find that it's not necessarily necessary for us to do everything every day. You know, we kind of up that a little bit if exposed or going somewhere or flying or whatnot. But then I have sort of my baseline. So for me, because I myself have Hashimoto's and my client population, my students, everyone in my community has Hashimoto's, I'm very careful about using certain herbs that can have any type of 
stimulating effect on the immune system. Because if that happens, then yes, you'll attack the bugs, but you'll also attack more of your thyroid, which we don't want because there's already a flag on the thyroid. So I use things that are going to be kind of overall supporting, sort of neutral to the immune system rather than boosting or more modulating. So zinc, quercetin, vitamin C, lysine, selenium, they're basic, but they work in the right doses. You know, I'm not talking about 500 milligrams of vitamin C. We go up usually to 5,000, um, you know, higher doses of zinc. And then I usually test people too to see, you know, if they have high copper, they need even more zinc. And if they have low copper, which happens of course as well, then they may need to supplement a little bit of copper along with the zinc. So there's always that balance. But that's something that is going to be kind of my base. I up the dosages if someone is already sick. And then I will add Alimax or Alimed, which is a really potent uh, allicin extract that I know you probably use as well. I like that one because it doesn't have a really strong garlic smell. I've used other brands and oh goodness, people complain. They email me. Oh my gosh, I smell like garlic. I can't take this. So this one I like a lot. Um, I also use monolaurin um, as needed. Not everyone can tolerate that. So we kind of play with the dosage depending on what people can do. And um, I don't honestly use a ton of herbs because when it comes to Hashimoto's, you just never know. And there's even herbs that are supposedly not immune stimulating, but are immune modulating. I have still seen them create flare-ups. And I'm someone who's very sensitive, so I've experimented on myself a lot more Tell than me. I'd like to admit. Which one? What in particular? Give us Mushrooms. one. Mushrooms. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, everywhere in the research, you'll see, yeah, that's not supposed to stimulate. It's modulating. And, you know, there's so many people promoting that. And again, I'm not saying that they're wrong, right? But I, when I talk about anything with Hashimoto's, I always take in to account the most sensitive person as well. So I would never want to recommend something, even if there's a 5% chance that someone can react. I'd rather go with what I call the safe immune nutrients because I think they're just as effective and there's not a chance that things can flare. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is why, in my opinion, the best practitioners are the ones who've suffered. And you and I both have been through a tremendous amount of suffering. And so that makes us really empathize. But more than the empathy we can provide, it's the clinical data. It's the details. Because with these details that you're describing, this can make or break a case where you have a generic naturopath protocol out there. And they put them on this mushroom blend. They're drinking mushroom coffee, et cetera. And they don't know why their protocol is not working or they get totally derailed. Yeah. Yeah, I wow. actually just had uh, one of my students in the program that's in my course. She sent a message to me that she, uh, her naturopath tested her and EBV did come out positive. So it was reactivated. And she said, my naturopath gave me this like immune pack and you know, she wanted to know if it's okay to take. And when she sent it to me, it had echinacea. It had, I mean, it had all of these immune stimulant herbs. It was actually um, a product, but it's not a bad product. It's just, I wouldn't use it for autoimmunity. It was like an immune kind of boosting complex um, from one of the companies that, you know, is, is a very common company. And again, it's a good product, just not for this case. And so I looked at it and I said, oh boy, you know, and I said, let me ask you, how are you feeling? She was like, I feel terrible. And so I'm yeah. like, okay, <laughs> we need to get off that. And then within two days, she's like, oh, okay, I'm feeling better now. So what do you think? It was just actually hyper-stimulating the immune system? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wow. Well, let's wrap this up. This will be uh, to be continued. I actually 
have already uh, kind of drafted up a little page here. So this is what uh, if people are if people are interested, then uh, we'll put the link. But it's going to say get notified of the joint thyroid webinar with Evan Brand and Ina, and we'll have a link for that. So put your email in. We'll notify you. And in the meantime, people can check out your website. This is completenutritionandwellness.com. You've got a lot of good stuff here, information about testing. So if people wanted to look into their hair, I think it's cool. I got really into hair years ago, and then I just didn't really pursue it much because eventually people got tapped out, whether it was their sanity or their budget. And then I couldn't get them to do the oat test and some of the other things. So I was like, eh. So I kind of let the hair slide, but you've got me intrigued again to want to do more of this. Yeah, it's, you know, when you're looking at pricing, hair testing is fairly inexpensive compared to the other tests. Now, of course, it all adds up and the oat and the stool are so important. I would never kind of use one instead, but if they can do it, it's just a nice extra thing, especially if I'm suspecting like a hormone thing or a metal thing. Um, so, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, this, this is fun. So I appreciate you and your expertise and look forward to more education together. Yes, I appreciate you and all the work that you do and all the people that you help. And it's such a pleasure being here with you today. Well, take good care. Yeah. Bye-bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. As always, you can enroll in Better Belly, Better Energy, Better Home. These are functional medicine training courses that will totally transform your life because it took me a thousand plus clients of clinical experience to be confident enough to put together this type of content where I can distill everything I've learned and put it into an action-based course that's based on your own personal lab testing results. So you can reach out at my site, evanbrand.com. You can go to the courses tab and the menu bar. Check those out. The summer enrollment period is open. This is a great time for you at a fraction of the cost of a college uh, curriculum you are going to get far more information about your own health and how to transform your anxiety, your sleep issues, your skin issues, your gut problems. You don't have to see any doctors. You don't have to go to LabCorp. You don't have to get a blood draw. You just find the labs that we send, do them, send them back, get the results, follow the course, look at the protocols, make your protocol, boom. You can totally improve your sex drive, your energy, your sleep, your mood, it's all connected to the health of your business relationships, your personal relationships. Like at the end of the day, am I happy when I improve someone's gut? Yes. But am I happier when I improve their gut so much that now they can sit at their desk at work and focus and they can make more money now, which then helps them buy better quality food for their family because their gut is calm enough for their brain to work? or we clear their brain fog so they can actually perform, or the new job that they're seeking, they feel confident enough with their mental capacity to do that job, or the mom who was overwhelmed feels more in control of her stress, now she can be a better parent to her kids so they don't grow up traumatized. Like These are the real reasons I do this, and these are the ways that you can transform your life for the better now. At like less than two grand, you could be into some amazing content. You could get my whole bundle of courses for less than three grand, get a 30% discount on that enrollment. A fraction of what I paid for business school, which taught me nothing about business. So if this is a year you want to get yourself better, do it. Let's do it together. Evanbrand.com. You can go to the courses tab, or if you want to reach out, one-on-one -on -one consults are available. You can do that on my site as well. Take good care. We'll talk with you soon. Bye-bye.